The book of 2 Timothy is a unique book, a unique letter. It is a letter by the Apostle Paul, written to his son in the faith, Timothy. We know there are three personal letters here that the Apostle Paul wrote. Uh, In addition to that, uh, certainly the one to Philemon. But Timothy... The two letters to Timothy and the one letter to Titus are known as the pastoral epistles. And likely, uh, were you to read through 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy together, you would notice that 1 Timothy uh, certainly is written directly to uh, his son in the faith, Timothy, the one who uh, really, in a sense, will carry the mantle of the Apostle Paul after his death. But we see that the things that he directs Timothy to uh, very much are kind of using Timothy, as it were, as a conduit by which he would teach the congregation uh, the truths that would be so important to the church. The letter to 2 Timothy, however, has a very different feel to it. It's much more personal. Uh, it, it has a lot more to do with the individual, Timothy. As Timothy, uh, and we see in uh, not only the book of Acts, but also these letters that the Apostle Paul wrote, that his two pastors, the, one that he, the ones that he wrote to, Timothy and Titus, they really, in fact, are very different men. Timothy had a reputation for amiability. Um, he was kindly, also timid. He might be described, in a sense, perhaps as a follower, particularly set alongside Titus who didn't really seem to need the same kinds of encouragement as Timothy did. And Timothy here, we see a very personal letter by the Apostle Paul. And so, I would encourage you to look at the truths that the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy as you would hopefully apply them to yourself by the power of the Holy Spirit, as you would see them absolutely applicable to you, as we see the Apostle Paul really is very much concerned about Timothy the individual, about how Timothy's doing in the work that he's brought about. And, and really, he struggles with the same things that we do in our own culture. We know that our culture is very burdensome. Uh, our, brother El- our brother Woody's prayer really implied that. We live in a culture that is weighty. Uh, And oftentimes we just want to release. And our own culture really has produced and developed a complete and comprehensive plan for you to have release. And that is really in the form of therapy, of the therapeutic. Now, my task here is not to strike against the concept of therapy. I recognize that there certainly are some benefits to it. However, you would notice that the Apostle Paul doesn't direct Timothy in that way. He has a different encouragement for his son in the faith, Timothy. And so let's look here and see uh, what he has for us. And uh, so really my purpose here as we look at the sweep of the entire breadth of the gospel through all the scriptures. Of course, we find ourselves here in the letter of 2 Timothy. And what I would like, again, to draw your attention to is the personal nature of the application of the truths of God to us as individuals in the situations that we find ourselves as we live out the gospel. And that really is the, that is the message of this letter in 1 Timothy. And the very first chapter of this message 
has to do with holding on to sound doctrine. Holding on to sound doctrine. We see in other chapters the concept of preaching sound doctrine, of teaching sound doctrine, and so forth and so on. But nonetheless, you will see, uh, I pray, the personal application to you, particularly in this first chapter, and that is, what does it mean, and how can we, in the age that we live, hold on to the sound words, as the Apostle Paul describes them? Holding fast to sound doctrine and practice. And so it's appropriate that we would ask the question here as we consider this letter, this uh, last letter really that the Apostle Paul wrote. uh, Where is Paul? Well, often we hear that Paul is awaiting trial. But he's not awaiting trial as he writes this letter. He's awaiting execution. Uh, That's a tremendous difference. Uh, which may actually happen before Timothy was able to make it to him with his encouraging presence and bringing the cloak and books and parchments which he left at Troas. Although Paul is facing execution, many of his friends have deserted him because of their fear of persecution. He directs Timothy to an abiding hope in Christ. The old soldier will die soon. But he has the depth of fellowship with Christ in his suffering such that he can cheer those left in battle and urge them on. To his dying day, the Apostle Paul was planting trees with the expectation that they would be beautiful and seen by those who followed and perhaps even seen by him even as he awaited execution. The Apostle's life is nothing less than a series of amazing adventures. Narrow escapes, wicked adversaries, a myriad of friends, some meaning well, yet falling away for fear of persecution or illness or being attracted to lesser things. Some truly holding the ropes for him, unashamed of the sordid life of Christ and of his servant, the Apostle Paul. Paul's story has sea adventures, it has shipwrecks, it has overland travel with soldiers, interviews with powerful rulers, all sorts of legal battles, several periods of imprisonment, enduring relationships with prison guards, tender mentoring friendships with those who would eventually take up the mantle of ministry from him, and enduring church plants. You want excitement and adventure? Look no further than the Apostle Paul's life. Listen to a brief excerpt from this letter. For instance, in chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. Just get a sense of what the Apostle Paul kind of experienced in his life as he really lays out a few brief uh, notes of narrative of his life. He says, You're aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus. For he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. Now, a brief note on Onesiphorus. You notice that all the references are actually to his household and not to him. 
The possibility exists that Onesiphorus, because of his devotion to the Apostle Paul, really uh, was able to enter into that which his other friends were fearful of. It's possible that Onesiphorus was actually killed for his commitment and ministry to the Apostle Paul. Chapter 2, verses 16 to 18. Avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Just get a sense of the Apostle Paul's experience in ministry. If you want to ask the question, hey, what's it been like for you? This is the answer. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They're upsetting the faith of some. Get a glimpse of the pastor's heart here. Upsetting the faith. He's concerned about the fragility of this thing called saving faith that, yes, is permanent, but also is involved in many trials as we grow. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, Lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. We were commenting just the other day on uh, the advent of instruction manuals. And if you're ever around a certain organization or uh, perhaps uh, a type of industry, you would notice, were you there for a long period of time, that the instruction manuals grow. They get bigger and bigger and bigger. While all the processes don't change, uh, and the people that are working them uh, really in reality are still the same type of human beings. But what you would notice is because of the problems that occur, the mistakes that people make, and so forth and so on, they then take into account this and that and the other. And we see that in the Apostle Paul's, in this portion of the letter in chapter 3, for instance, because one thing we, we, one thing we know about the Apostle Paul is that he has seen the end from the beginning. I want you to get a feel for just what's normal and natural for the Apostle Paul. What has he experienced? This type of people. The challenges they bring. The sins they involve themselves in. And then chapter 4, verses 9 through 18. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he's very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself. For he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. 
may it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, what just happened in this letter to Timothy is that the Apostle Paul seemingly went through his entire contact list and he went over his entire calendar with Timothy and he said, what about this guy and that guy? And let me tell you about this situation here and don't forget this one and be mindful of this particular individual here and would you please bring this, that and the other from these people. Beware of this person. Beware of this situation. Beware of this error and so forth. And so the Apostle Paul is collecting all of this data and laying it out for Timothy. And now let's go back to chapter 1. As I mentioned, so that's the Apostle Paul. That's who he was. That's where he was. This is where he is, right? It's likely that the Apostle Paul, uh, well, we... It's not merely likely, it's recorded in Scripture that on his second missionary journey when Paul and Silas were there at Derby and Lystra that Timothy agreed to accompany them. This was in the early 50s. And this is 67 or 68 when the Apostle Paul is writing this note. Timothy was no newcomer to the faith or to ministry. His character, as I mentioned, was a blend of amiability, faithfulness, and natural timidity. He also had frequent ailments. But in spite of this, he agreed to go with the Apostle Paul on very dangerous journeys. In spite of those things. On the third missionary journey, Timothy is with Paul in their lengthy stay in Ephesus, returning to Macedonia with Paul. Again, probably in the early 50s. And so we have his directions here. You can pick up notes in the other letters, the other letters that the Apostle Paul has, as well as the long, robust narrative in the book of Acts that speaks in the second half of the book about the Apostle Paul's efforts and the way that he was used of the Lord. And so again, we're thinking about the Apostle Paul's words to Timothy. We're thinking about the rough and tumble of life, not only in the culture uh, of the first century uh, Christianity, but also uh, the challenges of, of course, ministering in that environment. And the real theme of this first chapter is holding fast to faithful doctrine. And what we'll notice in this uh, is nothing less than some very strong exhortations and encouragements by the Apostle Paul to Timothy. And so there are a number of implications here. One is that slowing up, avoiding thoughtful confrontation to put down error or sin, failing to address issues, growing in ambivalence in spiritual matters are associated with losing one's hold on sound doctrine and reflects a sense that one is actually ashamed of the gospel. 
Now, the Apostle Paul draws this directly. There's no subtlety here. The Apostle Paul, in chapter 1 of this little letter in 2 Timothy, draws the direct conclusion that there is a flagging in one's holding fast to sound doctrine when one begins to at least give the impression that he is actually ashamed of the faith. Ashamed of uh, the, the picture that one gets of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, born in a stable, raised as a common individual. And also the Apostle Paul. Consider what his resume looks like. How would you like to have a little vitae of the Apostle Paul's life? Here you are reading it across the desk from some furrowed brow. Oh, I see Paul here. Oh, very good. Let's see, you were in prison. How many? What is this? Run out of town all these times and so forth and so on. And so it's not easy for us, or rather it isn't very difficult for us to anticipate that Timothy might, with his timidity, his frequent ailments, his concerns about the errors, that he might begin to kind of slump down in his seat a little bit. You know what I'm saying? And kind of lower his head to miss a few bullets, maybe? Also, we see the implication that the nature of the church and the redeemed is to need encouragement. To need correction, to need direction, to need urging. He says, follow the pattern. Follow the pattern of sound words, verse 13. He's not proposing that Timothy take a survey. There are no implications or directions to Timothy here that he began to dream wild dreams about where he would want the gospel to go. There's none of that. No. He says, Timothy, by the grace of God, you can see my footprints. Walk in them. You would be best not to step away from the pattern of sound words that you've heard from me. But also the simple implication that we need to be encouraged. Now, this idea that we, we need encouragement, we need urging, we need direction, go this way, not that way, and so forth, how does that make you feel? It's proverbial that some people don't want you to tell them how to get somewhere. They don't want you to tell them that. Why? I don't know. Do you ever get lost? On those occasions when you've gotten lost, did you know where you were going? You sure thought you did. You sure thought you knew where you were going. But it turns out you didn't. And you might have been very confident of that. But you see, the reality is is that God, and perhaps you would like to take this up with Him, but God has designed me and He's designed you to need instructions. He's designed us to never mature out of needing a shepherd, needing pastoral encouragement, needing an urging, and so forth. 
It is true that the Apostle Paul is, in a sense, working himself out of a job, as it were, with his execution. But that doesn't mean that there no longer is a need for pastors and teachers. That's all the same. It's just that someone else is going to have to stand and do the same thing that he's doing. And that's the idea. We need encouragement. God has shaped our very lives in this process of sanctification such that we continually need this urging, this encouragement, and so forth. And also we have in this passage the implication that doctrine is not merely heard. You heard James chapter 3 read, Doctrine is not merely heard, it's done. The old Puritan got home from church and was asked the question, is the sermon done? And he said, no. The sermon has been heard, but the sermon hasn't been done. Doctrine is not merely hearing, as James captures in his letter. It's the doing. And lastly, connected with the second note that I brought to you, pacing someone in a race. Uh, This is an old Navy trick. You gotta, you gotta run that fitness test twice a year. Some of those old submariners only ran twice a year. I can tell you that. And they needed somebody to pace them. At least they needed it. They might not have wanted it. But when somebody who's a little faster runs alongside a slower person, what are all of the things that might go on in the minds? Well, one of them that seems most common is, I don't need you. Get away from me. You make me look like the slow person I really am. The others might say, hey, could you take hold of my hand and pull me as well? I need a little stronger yank than just someone running beside me. And so that's the situation that we're in, right? And by design, by design, the Lord has designed us this way such that we we must walk this life together. We run this race together where all of us happen to be on the same path at the same time. Walking the same way. Right? So, there's the situation. We've got the Apostle Paul's data. We've got Timothy's data here. We've got this needfulness, this very burdensome, in a sense, oppressive, not only culture, but work. You ever find your work to be kind of burdensome and oppressive? Do you ever find it difficult to express uh, Christian character and what it is that you do? Do you ever find people that are very difficult to deal with? Do you ever want to just throw up your hands and run away? Sure we do. There was a man named Zeno in 300 B.C. that had a great idea about that. He invented 
this concept of Stoicism, and that's stuck with us to this day, I assure you. Stoicism is uh, this idea that there's an emphasis on an ethical response to faith, that there really is nothing we can do, we simply just stand and take it and try to be as ethically upright as we can. There's a tendency and an inclination for a kind of harsh, quiet, stiff upper lip, if you will. The only reason I bring that up is to tell you that what the Apostle Paul is directing Timothy to has nothing to do with that. The Apostle Paul was well-versed with Stoicism because he lived in the days of the Greek and Roman philosophers. And he had to deal with those things in opposition to the truths of God's Word. And the Apostle Paul is saying something far different to Timothy than simply to have a stiff upper lip and to scourge yourself of any feelings or tenderness. He encouraged Timothy to a rich, tender, dependent relationship with the living Christ, resulting in joyful faithfulness and effectiveness in life. So again, here's Timothy. He's just slinking in his chair. I mean, he, he's, he's, he's in a sense a, a, a little bit overwhelmed with all of the challenge. There's, there's the Ephesian errorists that are uh, they're relentless. They have this demonic obsession with putting down the gospel and the truths of the gospel. These Judaizers, that it's like a -a whack-a-mole. Every day you look around and here's someone else telling me this and that and the other. And then there's there's the need to develop leadership in the church and the proclamation that people must know more than the simple, very basic truths of the gospel, but how to live and how to apply the words the sound words of faithfulness that the Apostle Paul had levied upon him. We see verse 3 here in chapter 1. Paul says, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember... Your tears. What was it like when the Apostle Paul packed up his things and directed Timothy to stay while he went on to the next place? What was it like? I imagine that was one place where he saw the tears of Timothy as this wide-eyed young man was left with such a challenging work. You might say, well, the Apostle Paul has matured his way out of needing encouragement. He is the one that said, I've learned to be content in all things. He has, but if you would read a little further, you'll notice that there is a unique uh, additional reason why it is that Timothy should be encouraged. So we can encourage Paul that upon their meeting, as verse 4 says, 
I may be filled with joy. Verse 5, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. Timothy had been taught the Scriptures from an early age. The implication here isn't that uh, Eunice and Lois actually were even uh, so representative of those that embraced the Old Testament religion, but the idea here is that they embraced the new. The Lord Jesus Christ, Messiah. They knew Him. And they passed that on to Timothy. He was no newcomer to the faith. The Apostle Paul, of course, identified his gifts. Timothy needs urging on so he can encourage Paul. Verse 6, for this reason. Oh, for what reason? Well, Timothy was was deposited, as it were, with a, a body of knowledge and information about the gospel and a holy calling being set apart, not unlike our own. On the basis of Timothy's faith, Paul encouraged him to fan into flame the gift of God's grace, which enabled Timothy to be Paul's representative. Paul knew the flame was burning low. He had frequent ailments, a natural timidity, an inclination to fall into the shadows of the work at hand. As I mentioned, the Ephesian errorists were very determined in their opposition, and believers at that time, of course, were persecuted by the state. The flame hadn't gone out, but it was burning low, and the Apostle Paul was about to be taken off the scene by way of execution. Now let me ask you a question. If your old pastor came up next to you and said, I think your flame's burning a little bit low, how would you receive that? Preacher, you ain't seen nothing yet. Could be a myriad of responses, right? But again, there's a necessity. We're working hand in hand. The Apostle Paul, even from that distance, could identify the needs that Timothy had. Verse 7, The Holy Spirit's work is in us, not of fear or cowardice, but power and love and self-control. The Apostle Paul is encouraging him to tap into that which is already his. We've been reminded on several occasions when the Lord Jesus Christ was on that boat with the disciples in the storm, what did He ask them? They were all afraid. He said, where is your faith? The implication wasn't that they weren't redeemed. It's that they weren't assessing the faith that they had. The Holy Spirit's power is not the power of fear. He gives to us courage. Love, self-control. Self-control seems perhaps an odd addition to the list, but nonetheless, it wouldn't take us long to recognize that we need self-control to hold fast. You ever wanted something really, really bad? Children, it could be lunch or a cupcake. 
And then you ask, how long will it be until I get it? And then you hear, ten minutes. And you watch the minutes tick by. And you get to the point where at the ten minute mark you realize that you've just zeroed in and there's no possibility that you could even exist unless you are relieved at that moment to get what you want. But you recognize also as you get older that all the while that really is an exercise in self-control because the reality is is you actually can wait a little longer. It's okay. But you just get to the point where you don't think you can take it any longer and the Apostle Paul is saying, oh no. No, by the power of the Holy Spirit we can walk with Christ in difficulty all day. And not merely exist. And this is one of the things that is so important that we get out of this letter is Timothy wasn't, he didn't have set before him by the Apostle Paul this idea that Timothy, just make it through Monday and it'll be alright. That's not it. No, no. No, Timothy had to do far more than merely survive. In the midst of all of that challenge and difficulty, he had to proclaim the Word of God. He had to raise up godly leaders. He had to strategize other church plants. He had to identify errors. He had to confront them with knowledge and tenderness. He had to do all of these things. He couldn't just merely survive. And the same is for us, right? We, we just want to make it through a day without yelling. Making it through a day without yelling is setting our goals far too low. We've got more and more to do than simply not yelling. No, the Lord has set before us a work. A grand work that's only done by those who are set apart by the Holy Spirit to do what it is that He's called us to do. Timothy is encouraged to avail himself of this power. As I mentioned, the world wears us down. We weary in the fight because of our own sin, the application of the gospel and our relationships, the responsibilities of living in light of the gospel. Now, as I mentioned, and I, I want to tell you, I, I like vacations. I do. And uh, we recognize and have noted that the Lord Jesus Christ did step aside from the crowds and have some moments of quietness. He did. But I think it's very important that you recognize that the Apostle Paul, not one time in his letters to Timothy, encourages him to take a vacation. Not one time. Now, because of our therapeutic culture, we're inclined that that is actually our first idea. Is that when things get hard, what do I need? I need a break. That's what I need. I mean, I can guarantee you, man, this is hard, and what I need is a day off. Paul didn't tell them that. He didn't encourage Timothy to take a day off. 
Now, again, that's... Uh, that doesn't mean that he shouldn't. That doesn't mean that in letters that weren't inspired, that didn't show up in, in the Word of God, that doesn't mean that uh, the Apostle Paul didn't encourage him to take some time off. No doubt, likely he did. But I'm simply addressing the current contemporary culture is so heavily laden with the concept of therapy and the therapeutic that when things get hard, likely our first inclination is that we need a break. And the Apostle Paul never mentioned that. He simply encouraged him to tap into the resources of the Holy Spirit, of power, of love, and of self-control, to press on. He encouraged him to shake off the drowsiness, to stand up, to go forward, following the pattern of sound words, keep on going, one foot in front of the other, day by day by day, not in a stoic sense, but in a sense of growing in this joy of entering into the fellowship of the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's version of self-care isn't a cold get-back-to-work, but it's real encouragement yet again to tap into the strength of Christ, thinking objectively about the past, about the present, and about the future, and staying in the fight with love and tenderness. And so he says in verse 8, Therefore, therefore don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of Christ, of of His ignoble birth, of His death on a cross. Don't be ashamed of Paul the Apostle, the Roman criminal awaiting execution, but share in suffering. This This is the most kindly exhortation that I think I have ever heard. But ultimately what the Apostle Paul is saying is, Timothy, quit being a slacker. Those are hard words. But, but it's a recognition of the difficulty and, and really the, the, the unnerving challenges that Timothy is faced with. In a sense, perhaps we could say that he's a little bit touched with, with kind of this, this kind of stress paralyzation that all of us can in some ways relate to. This situation is overwhelming. I don't really choose to do nothing. I just don't know what to do. And here's the Apostle Paul. Remember the pattern of sound words. And that's why it's so urgent that we continue to work on our scriptural muscle memory, the power of the Holy Spirit. Yes, I know what to do. This is the same action. I'm stepping into the pattern of sound words. I can do this with the power of Christ. The Apostle Paul was noted, as were so many that are referenced in Hebrews chapter 11. As they stepped into the pattern of sound doctrine, we know one thing among others that was quite common to them. They never considered the consequences of their actions. 
Now, I'm not saying they didn't anticipate the possibility of the future, but what I'm saying is their faithfulness in stepping into the pattern of sound words had no connection to their concern about the potential negative consequences of their actions. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. As a matter of fact, he says right here in verse 3 of chapter 2, share in suffering. Share in suffering as a good soldier. What's the alternative to that? Well, the alternative to that is to let other people suffer for you. No, no. No, I've got to shoulder this. Because God has made it so. And He's made me so. So that we can go into this. For the gospel, by the power of God, in verse 8 here. Verse 9, he reminds Timothy that God called us to a a holy calling. He saved us for a purpose. We didn't choose ourselves. God did for His own purposes. We've been set apart for this very work. Surely we should want to do what it is that God has set us apart to do. You know, oftentimes when people uh, endure a long period of training to do a certain job, when they get to the end of that and toward the end of that training, what do we hear from them? They say, look, I just want to do my job. I want to do what I'm here to do. I'm tired of training. I want to get at it. And that's what the Apostle Paul is encouraging Timothy with. Surely we want to do what God has called us to do. What He set us apart for. He reminds him in verse 10 that the gospel has been manifested through the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what did he do? He abolished death. He brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And the Apostle Paul was appointed in a similar fashion to Timothy, minus the apostleship, of course, for I was appointed a preacher and apostle and a teacher. And Paul makes it clear in verse 12. That's why I suffer. That's why I suffer. But see, in our culture, we've also changed suffering. In our, in our culture, the only people that suffer are suckers. They're suckers. Right? They're not smart enough. To avoid suffering. They, they, they should have said something different. They should have soft-pedaled the truths of the gospel. They're just suckers. No. The Apostle Paul didn't say that I suffer because my mouth was running and it shouldn't have. He said, I suffer because God has called me to the position of teacher and preacher and apostle. This is why he suffers. And Paul is notorious for suffering. As a matter of fact, in his own conversion, he was informed by the Lord Jesus Christ that he would suffer. The Apostle Paul, is, is aside from the Lord Jesus Christ, is the one who has suffered most in the letters and in the writings of the New Testament. And he says, Timothy, don't be ashamed of the Lord Jesus. 
Don't be ashamed of me. He knows, he believes, he's convinced, and he's persuaded, says verse 12. I know whom I've believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. That sounds very much like what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said just before they were thrown into the fiery furnace. Follow the pattern. Verse 13. Follow the pattern of sound words that you've heard from me. Things aren't as uncertain or chaotic as they seem. Follow me as I follow Christ and all will be well. And he steps aside from this very personal letter, revealing much about himself, and he directs Timothy's attention to this Onesiphorus. He's another hero of the faith that's set in front of Timothy for him to really look at and consider. When all were turning away, there was Onesiphorus. He refreshed me. He wasn't ashamed of my chains. He searched for me. You ever look for something and hope you never found it? That wasn't Onesiphorus. He searched and he found what he was looking for. And it wasn't easy when he was looking, and it wasn't easy when he found him. But he says, May the Lord grant him mercy from the Lord on that day. And then he says to Timothy, Well, you you yourself know what aid he he had for me in Ephesus. I mean, Onesiphorus, he, he had looked for Paul before and found him. And so let us be encouraged. Let us be urged on. Let us recognize we're, yes, we're, we're made of dirt. And that wasn't a mistake. It wasn't a defect that we're needing the exhortations, the encouragements, the urgings of the gospel. Let us pray.